Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Welcome to the second episode in our special Alpha Exchange series focused specifically on the 2020 economic and financial crisis. It was my pleasure to have Veneer Bonsali, founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha, back on the podcast to hear his framing of the conditions that gave rise to so substantial a sell-off in markets in so short a period of time. Calling the markets the most illiquid in his 30-year trading career, Veneer cites the sandpile effect in describing the devastation to asset prices. COVID-19, in this way, is simply the straw that broke the camel's back after years and years of accumulated carry trades. Veneer's insights on the manner in which the system of risk-taking may now be set to interact with the economic fundamentals in a negatively reinforcing manner is critical to appreciate. Thank you for listening. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Veneer Bansali. Veneer is the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha and someone who I've been privileged to exchange ideas with over the course of some years now before this epic vol event. Veneer, in some ways, we couldn't have seen this coming, but in some ways, just given a lot of your insights on market structure and fragility, the song remains the same. I'd love for you to take us through maybe in the period preceding this, what did you see in terms of asset price vulnerabilities? I know you've done a lot of work on this notion of shadow insurance. I think what you said, Dean, by the way, thank you for having me. I know everybody's incredibly busy and we'll try to be as precise and concise and matter of fact so people can take this and perhaps make good investment decisions. So in my view, it's any market that has had its course or run its course or has the kind of rally that our markets have had is vulnerable for a number of reasons, one being that it encourages a great positive speculative mood, which leads to leverage. And some of the technicals that you just highlighted, some of the short volatility strategies, low rates, et cetera, just amplified uh, the asymmetry in the marketplace. So I would be the last one or maybe the first one to say that I couldn't have forecast what just happened. And I did not forecast obviously what happened, but I did write a piece in early January, which was my retrospective for 2019 on Forbes and also on our website, which basically said racing avalanches. And just again, long story short, I was out in the backcountry doing backcountry snowboard skinning and it was a beautiful day, sunny and fresh powder was on the ground. And this was right after Christmas. And I suddenly said, oh my gosh, I haven't really figured out how to save myself right now if there was a big avalanche, because these are the conditions in which snow suddenly collapses in markets, obviously. So I ran back to my condo and I got a number of books on surviving in avalanches. And I read this beautiful book on surviving in avalanches. And what I found there was a lot of what happens in both avalanches and in markets is at the end of the day, just what they call a sandpile effect. The fact that the last straw just breaks the camel's back and perhaps this very unfortunate and sad COVID event in this case was the thing that drove it, but maybe something else would have. So I think the market technicals and the asymmetry and the leverage was obviously extremely bad. And some of the short volatility strategies that I've been writing about for multiple years has amplified it. And you add to it the fact that there's complete and total illiquidity. And we'll get into this in a second, but the markets are the most illiquid I have experienced in the last maybe 30 years that I've been doing it. That amplifies 
the fact that everybody's trying to exit at the same time and very few people are getting out at the prices that they need to get out at. Let's run with that. Clearly, we've experienced, and I think your old colleague, Mohammed El Irin, has framed it quite well in the economic sudden stop framework. I just created a little acronym called MESS, which is Massive Economic Sudden Stop. And that's effectively what we've come across. It's hard not to suggest that asset prices would not be vulnerable to something like this. I mean, they're down quite a bit. There's no way something like this, no matter how robust market structure was coming into it, there's no way that this wouldn't lead to a significant tightening of financial conditions, widening of credit spreads, big sell-off and inequities and an increase in vol. But you certainly, and I'm in your camp, point to the inherent, the fragilities that we had accumulated along the way. Can you try to disentangle the two for us? I mean, of course, there's no truly right answer. There's no mathematical solution. But how much of this, again, acknowledging that this is truly a massive economic sudden stop, how much of this is accelerated by what you would consider to be the frailty of positioning and market structure coming in? Yeah, so I'm always of the camp, that's a great way of putting it, I'm always of the camp that it's almost impossible to disentangle what is the cause and what is the effect. Is economics or slowing down of economics the cause of market crashes or market corrections or market crashes are the cause for economics. So I do try to disentangle it. And it is true that looking in the rearview mirror, economics itself hasn't changed very much and still looks like fundamentals are very good. And like I read the classic quote from from Galbraith from the 1950s, people will reassure us that the economics are stable and is stable. And I think that will remain the case until the feedback effect from the markets and people's behavior changes the economics. And a number of people have written about it. Now, on the second part of the question, the frailty. So I think what happens is, and you know, George Soros has obviously written books about this, uh, there's a positive virtuous cycle when asset prices are going up. People essentially start attributing it to strong economics and that feeds back into things actually looking stronger. And one of the classic examples that we've seen in the last decade, which actually we saw even before the 08 and 09 crash, was the fact that buybacks and M&A activity and private equity activity was at all-time peaks. This time around, because of this confluence of great things that happened, the tax break and low rates and very low funding spreads and so on, corporations were buying a massive amount of stock. And as long as they kept buying stock and markets had that positive feedback loop, things were very good. And that's part of the reason why every time we got a very significant negative news in the last three to five years, markets basically went down, but they bounced back very rapidly because corporations were still buying because what they saw on the horizon from the technicals, like you know the politics and all the stuff that's been going on in the White House and in Washington and so on, that was forecastable uncertainties. And again, markets could handle it, but suddenly out of left field, we got this virus that nobody was prepared for and it hit right under the belt, right? Because it hit revenues. And when revenues, forecast revenues can go down because people are not buying stuff and people are all hoarding capital. And then the linked effects of a very tightly coupled economy, the fact that people are going to get laid off and so on and so forth. And, you know, all the restaurants out here in Southern California are shut down. So you don't go out to eat. The grocery stores are emptying shelves. I mean, this is going into the real economy. Now we just heard this morning that approximately 200 billion worth of buybacks have been put on the shelf. So that's about, you know, 20% of the buybacks that we're planning to come this year after two amazing years of buybacks. 
So what's happening now is that the economic effects, the market effects, and the market technicals are beginning to interact in a very strong way, and they are beginning a vicious cycle that needs to get stopped. And again, going back to you know, Galbraith's book that I am actually reading for the second time this weekend, it's okay to buy stock back when markets are going up because on margin, you can set a higher price and tighten spreads. But now that markets are all being sold, whoever sticks their hand out and buys their stock back is going to get sold that stock. That's resulting in widening credit spreads, widening, tightening financial conditions and so on and so forth. And that's the fear to me is that these things start to not be decoupled as obviously Muhammad and others have written about, but start getting coupled in economic conditions and financial conditions actually start amplifying in a vicious cycle that doesn't end until it ends. About two weeks ago, amidst the initial intensification of the sell-off in risk assets, there was a lot going on in treasuries that from the outside looking in, you really couldn't appreciate, but were incredibly serious. From the outside looking in, you had the risk-free asset was, as it should be, rallying significantly. But what we were hearing was a breakdown in some of the basis relationships, whether it's futures versus cash on the run versus off the run, which got very, very significant. I'm wondering if you can bring to life that self-reinforcing dearth of liquidity and where it was going, what the Fed did. What does all that mean from the treasury market's perspective, what happened a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, so that's very close to my heart. In my old days, I was the Solomon Brothers and the basis trade was bread and butter. And now what has happened is obviously basis trade, like all other short volatility trades, and now I'll just, for readers or, or listeners who don't realize that the basis trade is also a very significant short volatility trade, the fact is that you are collecting an option premium in a basis trade, you buy futures contracts and you might, because of buying the futures contracts, you have a delivery option and you have the ability to actually deliver a particular cheapest to deliver treasury when the futures contract expires. So so in some substances that people collect the premium between the futures implied price of a particular cash security and then the cash security, and they if they can hold it to expiration, then clearly they'll make the money, which is, in other words, again, technical jargon here, but it's essentially the value of delivery option. And like all other options, if volatility rises, the delivery options price rises. And even though if you held it to expiry, you would be sure to get the gain from the delivery option. If in the middle of it, the option value goes significantly against you, you get liquidated because your counterparties who are lending you the leverage to do the basis trade will demand their money back. That's just an example of how various short volatility strategies in the ecosystem that we've spoken about in the last interview can all get correlated without the participants knowing at the same time that they're all doing the same thing. So to me, volatility or hidden optionality, illiquidity are places of the same coin because in order for you to exit this short volatility trade, you have to have somebody else supply you with something that either allows you to hedge it or sell you the volatility that you are short at egregious prices. And there comes a point where you don't have a provider and hence the markets become completely illiquid. Now, if you are counting on not buying the option back, but actually delta hedging, as one would have to do using the treasury futures market, you are relying on extremely thin ice conditions because that market 
is 95, maybe 98% electronic. And that's one of the pernicious things that has happened since the last crisis is that because of the electronification of the markets, there are a lot of people who have relied on being able to hedge in markets, you know, equity, e-mini futures contracts, treasury futures contracts, et cetera, et cetera, who find that the liquidity is actually just not there. So if they try to go and buy these treasuries, they find that their treasury market has no liquidity. The futures market, as a matter of fact, the treasury P-note futures market, which is probably the second most liquid market historically after the E-mini futures contracts, also was trading at approximately you know, 1, 1% to 5% of its average peak liquidity. They're trying to get out a financial market that is perhaps five to seven times larger than in 2008, 2009, with a option selling ecosystem that's perhaps 25 times larger out of of a market where the liquidity is maybe only 10% of what used to be in the peak. You're talking about a broken, 100% broken market. The third part of the equation is that we all rely on the Fed and other providers of liquidity to come in, and they did what they could. They mean good. They came in and they flooded the system as aggressively as they possibly could by cutting rates to zero and buying essentially an infinite amount of treasuries. But the fact of the matter is that that liquidity is not going to the places where it needs to go. The Fed, by its mandate, can buy cash treasuries, they can buy ETFs, they can buy straight equity, and clearly right now they can buy futures. If you're thinking about the massive derivatives markets that obviously I've been a part of and so have you, Dean, for about 30 years, that market is not getting the same sort of inflow of liquidity as the cash markets are. In my humble opinion, until that derivatives market self-equalizes, we're just not going to see this liquidity go away. And perhaps given the size of the markets and given the size or illiquidity or lack of size of the derivatives markets, maybe the circuit breakers that were set 10 to 15 years ago are too close. Maybe the circuit breakers have to get expanded to the point where the market can quickly do the damage that it's going to do, but then people in the real economy can recover from it. It's a very Austrian way of perhaps fixing the financial system, but the fact that you're getting limit moves every day for the last, maybe not every day, but almost every day for the last 7 to 10 to 15 days just tells you that there is this massive amounts of illiquidity and people just can't get out. Now, the final comment on the diversification benefits of treasuries, as everybody knows, is that today's yield levels globally are close to zero at best. Global bonds in Europe, obviously, they're at negative 60-odd basis points. In Germany, you've got Italy was trading through zero just a few weeks ago in the short end. You had the U.S. go to zero. And my call is that, unfortunately, the Fed's going to have to go negative, whether or not they do it explicitly or indirectly. What does it say about diversification? Unless we allow rates to go negative, there's just not much room left from treasuries to provide diversification against Risky assets sell off. But on the other hand, if all this inflow of money, you know, at last count, I saw about maybe close to 10 trillion of new money that's going to get printed, raises the fear of inflation rising, which may or may not happen, people are going to get rid of treasuries. And finally, maybe treasuries and the investment grade bond market is the only place you're going to get liquidity. So I think you're in a very strange environment that nobody has seen before. And as far as diversification goes, I don't think treasuries are going to provide 
the kind of diversification that they historically have unless the whole global yield curve goes, call it negative 100 basis points. Well, I want to get your thoughts on this Forbes piece that you've just written, which I thought was was excellent and very thought-provoking. I want you, before that, uh, if if you can, going back to this incredible surge in, in vol in the treasury market and this dislocation between the quality spreads between the ultra risk-free asset of the on the run and then something that's some version of a substitute for it. And and I'm hoping you can set that against uh, another big quality dislocation in treasuries, which goes back 20 years and we've talked about before and was really one portfolio centric LTCM. I'm curious, just based on what you saw in treasuries two weeks ago, and then that period in 98 of massive swap spread widening, big moves in the 29 and a half year treasury versus the on the run. Can you put those two into context, which was worse? And what what is the role of the leveraged player in each of these episodes? That's a great question. So there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. So clearly, the last time this happened in the off the runs, on the runs was, like you mentioned, during the LTCM era when I was at Solomon Brothers in the arbitrage group. And obviously, there were a lot of copycat had the same trades on. In those days, that was the bread and butter of essentially the liquidity sale trade because on the run versus off the run is essentially trying to harvest a few basis points of liquidity mispricing or not mispricing, but liquidity premium and then levering it multiple times. We saw exactly the same thing again in 2008, 2009, but maybe in smaller amounts because liquidity selling has graduated or maybe even gone to postgraduate school because it's various other ways of selling liquidity, and like I mentioned, the short volatility complex, the shadow insurance complex. What we saw in the last week was obviously very reminiscent of LTCM, but I saw illiquidity in some other areas which are perhaps worth highlighting, and this is one of the questions that I've been asking myself. So one area, inflation-linked securities, TIPS, for instance. Just in an auction about four or five days ago, TIPS were being sold at any reopening came out about 68 or 69 basis points, and immediately the person who bought it saw a gain of about 80 basis points over a couple of days because the Fed stepped in and obviously bought tips. But where I'm going with this is that there's a lot of products that did not exist in 1998, 1994, maybe even part of 2000, which is you know the last big sharp correction, and then 2008, 2009, which is essentially ETFs. ETFs not just in equity space but ETFs in bond space. So if you look at, for instance, number of the TIPS ETFs and even number of the treasury ETFs, they got sold incredibly hard because people essentially sold these widgets, as I call them, just to generate cash. One of the big differences that I saw between LTCM and today is that it has the indiscriminate selling or whatever you call it, the 30 sigma move in the off-the-run, on-the-run spreads actually was present in many other retail products, including some of these treasury ETFs and so on. Therein lies the opportunity for somebody who is able to manage liquidity and able to take advantage of the fact that not only many of the VTNs and ETFs, but also many closed-end funds who have a very you know, good underlying assets are in these types of episodes being sold at prices where the price actually exceeds the yields that you'll get for a year by about five times, right? So you're going to get three to 5% yield, but you can buy it at a discount of 25%. That's basically five years of yield that's being given, assuming that you trust an AV, or trust the NAV, 
by getting invested in those types of strategies. So it's very much a democratization of the illiquidity shock, which is probably the biggest difference between 1998 and today. In 98, it was the professional investors, the levered LTCM, the hedge fundies, as they used to call them, that got hurt. Today, I think everybody who's gotten suckered into uh, the levered package trade is, is probably going to feel the pain of the illiquidity. Take us through in terms of the Fed's response. So my understanding is, including agency MBS, we're essentially at something on the order of could be up to $125 billion of buying a day. I believe in the height of the QE period post-crisis, we were at $80 billion a month. I'm not sure if that's right, but that's what I remember. I mean, this is just an absolute unbelievable amount of Fed intervention in the Treasury and in the agency market. What does that tell us? Does it tell us that the size of the market is simply too big or that we allowed leveraged players to get too big? So that's question one. And then two, they've thrown a kitchen sink at this thing. Do you think the worst from a asset price dislocation is behind us? How do you see things playing out? There's a number of very deep questions, and I'll try to take them one by one. You're absolutely right. I think the markets are bigger, and I think the response function is faster because, as you probably have read, Chairman Bernanke wrote in his retrospective of the Great Depression from the 20s that, yeah, we know we made a mistake then, but we're not going to make that again. So I think they realize that the line between a healthy fear and wholesale panic is very, very thin, very fine line. And once you cross over into the panic side of the equation, especially given the uncertainty from the coronavirus and so on, perhaps you break the string and you can't come back. So the markets are bigger, but I think they are trying to go so far into the spectrum of buying assets that there's absolutely no doubt that they are doing everything that they possibly can. So the market's interpretation of it, on the other hand, may or may not be what they want. And again, there's two aspects of it. The first aspect is that buying agency mortgages may actually not do very much because just think about what's going on, right? They're buying agency mortgages from broker dealers or maybe Wall Street that owns it because mom and pop don't own agency mortgages. So they're essentially putting in a lot of liquidity into the hands of the intermediaries, which are the banks and the brokers. And does that liquidity then filter in into the hands of the real economy and the person who's out of a job? Perhaps not. That's the risk. Maybe it just gets hoarded like it has been hoarded in Europe, despite buying of literally trillions of bonds by the ECB and the money has just been held at the banks or been held at the weaker commercial counterparts. So if that money doesn't get lent out, it really doesn't help the economy. Now, I found it very telling in one of the interviews that the recent chairman did, he said that they're expecting, and the word was expecting or something similar, that the money will get lent out to the real economy. I don't think you can expect banks to do anything that's not in their best interest. So I think what has to happen is what is happening today, which is the fiscal, the, the helicopter drop, writing the checks. And my view is that that's just going to have to become the main way of getting money to the public. Now, coming back to the mortgages, buying mortgages, buying treasuries is fighting the last war because the housing market, as far as I know, is not in trouble. I mean, there are obviously loans that are going to not perform, but those folks that are in trouble. So the central banks, as we know, they're constrained by the law and 
they cannot go out and do things that they don't have permission from Congress to do, but they're doing, they're using the tools that they have used in the past. And unfortunately, I don't think hoping that buying more mortgages and funding the banks and hoping that the rest of corporate America and so on is going to do well, is going to work. So the step that they took, which is a very brave step and highly commendable step in my view, which is setting up the CP facility at the speed that they did and the primary credit facility and secondary credit facility for buying corporate bonds, that's all excellent because it gets money into the hands of the corporations who now need to buy or keep at least their debt and keep the spreads from widening. But at the same time, you've got the federal government saying that buybacks are not going to be allowed for people who borrow this. So you've got essentially one part of the regulators or the government trying to put oil in the machinery and another part of the government putting sand in the machinery. And it goes both ways, obviously. And so I think the machinery is just coming to a standstill. The final thing there is that, you know, they've obviously had to pick winners and losers because they are buying investment-grade corporates and investment-grade ETFs. Just as an FYI, one of the largest investment-grade ETFs went from a significant discount, 5 to 6% discount, to 5 to 6% premium. So as soon as you get the federal government and the central bank now buying private market securities in the open market, you are basically doing a legalized wealth transfer from one part of the economy, which is the taxpayer, to another part of the economy, which are speculators who have access to their ETFs and can get there before. So, so I, I don't know where it all ends. I do believe that once you start buying private assets like corporate bonds, you are basically doing what Japan has already gone down. You are next going to have to buy ETFs that are just trade equity ETFs. And I don't know where it ends, but in the long run, my answer is yes, I'm positive on asset prices. Asset prices always go up because that's the way you, like I write, wrote my blog, that's the way you gauge whether or not people are willing to take risk. So people will take risk when there's money to be made. The timing on when it happens, I don't really know. I do believe that there's incredible opportunities in the marketplace today if you have the liquidity and if you have the tolerance and if you have the ability to see another wave of selling and drawdowns. I'm positive on asset prices, but whether that asset price rally like the last 200 years, again, filters back into sustainable economic outcomes and eradication of bubbles and busts, um, I don't think so. I think from this phoenix, as they say, uh, this phoenix will rise from these ashes and you're going to have another bull market in equities at some point in the future. And you just have to be able to withstand the pain between now and then. Let's finish with some of your thought on your piece that appeared in Forbes. You made the point that the U.S. could very well follow Europe, follow Japan in terms of negative rates. I had seen one piece of research that was probably at the lows in the 10-year. I think we got down to maybe 48 basis points that one day. The swaps involved surfaces implied upwards of a 15% probability of the 10-year actually going negative you know, which is just a comment on where we were and how high vol was. But take us through your rationale in terms of the piece you wrote for Forbes. My rationale there, and by the way, yeah, the 10-year actually got, I think intraday, because I've been up pretty much every night intraday, I think there was a spike where it got into the 30s, if I'm not mistaken. And for the question of whether or not the market is implying negative rates, negative yields rather, is not just academic at this time. You know, people have observed T-bills are already trading at negative yield. So one of the rationales 
that I expressed there about possibly the U.S. going the same way that Europe and Japan have had to go. They haven't gone there willingly, but they've gone negative is because the market forces you and you cannot be completely oblivious of the market is telling you. So today's markets, you've got the fundamental, one of the observations in that piece is that you've got T-bills trading in negative yields. So at the same time, you can buy in the auction at 0% yield. So if you can buy in the auction at 0% yield and sell your T-bills in the market at, call it negative 10 or negative 15, given how much size of issuance we're going to have, this is basically a free, quote-unquote, free money, where essentially the Treasury and the Fed have different policies and the arbitrager in the middle is making as close to a risk-free profit as there can be by buying from one part of the government and selling to another part of the government, collecting that difference. So that's the main reason why I believe either T-bill yields come back up or maybe rates go negative. Now, there's a number of other secondary reasons, one of which is that the massive amount of liquidity that we've seen has been met with a massive amount of liquidity and money printing. So you've got a wall of money that's coming that's going to crowd out everything that you've seen so far, and especially because the central banks themselves are buying Treasury. So you've got a lot of public pensions. You've got a lot of other entities who actually have to buy these long-duration securities in in order to hedge their liabilities. And they're doing it for a risk management reason. If they start buying these long-end instruments for risk management reasons, they're pretty price insensitive like we've seen in Europe. And they're just going to buy these long treasuries uh, as long as the prices are going up. And we've seen that in Europe. In Europe, the ECB has been stepping in front of other buyers to buy bonds at negative yields. And in one of the most, I won't call it entertaining, but somewhat surprising moves, they actually reiterated that they're, they're going to be buying even more assets in Europe. If they buy more assets, they're going to actually drive people who need these assets for risk management reasons to buy it at the same negative yield. Talking about Europe and Japan at this point in time, that's another reason why I can see yields going negative, because in those countries, yields have already been negative. And At the moment, the market is not penalizing, for instance, Japan to print a lot of money and buying U.S. bonds or even European bonds. So if I was sitting, let's say, and my neighbor allowed me to print a bunch of monopoly money and buy their assets while guaranteeing payment in the future, just principal payment, even at negative yields, I'd probably take it because... I'm basically taking my printing press and guaranteeing future cash flows. So another way of saying that is that there's so much money being printed globally today that the return of the principal by itself or building a ladder of zero coupon bonds by itself is a way to essentially have the U.S. government and U.S. taxpayers pay the principal back at a slight negative cost. So these three or four reasons, there's probably a couple more, lead me to believe that the market could easily force the Fed to actually perhaps go negative not too far away from now. So what looks silly like buying zero coupon floors on euro dollars or buying call options struck at call it 25 basis points on treasuries, uh, that doesn't look as foolish anymore. Um, I'll stop with that. But essentially, there's one thought that I want to take at a very macro level from everything that we've seen is what we're seeing today is the plumbing of the financial system suddenly being revealed to be completely broken for what we need in terms of size that needs to move and so on. And this economic catastrophe and this medical health catastrophe has just exposed how unprepared the plumbing has been despite all the 
technology electronification of the markets. That's well said. Well, Veneer, I appreciate you making yourself available. It's always great to hear your insights, and I hope you and your family are well and safe. And let's hope we, the country and the world, are able to get out of this thing. Uh, it's a, definitely a trying time for the country, and certainly gives us a tremendous amount to think about on the asset price side. Absolutely. And likewise, I wish everybody, you and your family and the rest of us, being brought together because of this shocking health disaster to stay healthy. All right. I'll catch you soon. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.